in our practice, that sounds loud. <laughs> Is that too loud? Was that too loud? It's okay? Okay. Take two. <laughs> Dharma talk Wednesday. So as we're practicing, there are these uh, two broad rhythms, uh, very much in the spirit of uh, Heather's talk on cycles. And the one, <clears throat> the one rhythm is when we feel more caught, feel more um, taken by suffering, by our patterns and so forth. <clears throat> by the habitual tendencies of mind <clears throat> and heart and body. And yet we stay with them um, in our practice. We bring the mindfulness, we bring skillful means. And there's a, a second rhythm, and maybe it's more a matter of um, flavor, in which our practice feels more like the awakened qualities are gaining the upper hand <laughs> or they are more prominent uh, or they're there at all. <laughs> um, that the qualities of mindfulness and uh, concentration, the paramis that uh, Sylvia spoke of, uh, more compassion, more heartfulness for ourselves, that that's, uh, those are there more. And, and these are very interrelated because really to actually to, to actually to be with our difficult patterns, we need awakened qualities. To be with suffering, we need um, the awakened qualities really of awareness and compassion. And that changes everything. In some ways, awareness of suffering is not suffering. And that's the pivot of practice, really. Awareness of suffering is not 100% suffering. And so um, this afternoon, I wanna talk particularly about the, the second rhythm the, the dimension of awakening. But I want to begin by first sort of reprising or going back and giving um, a further concise understanding of how suffering happens. So how we get, how we get caught, how we're in bondage. There are different metaphors in the text, how we get entangled you know, like we're in a bunch of briars, you know, you can see what metaphor works for you. So again, I'll, I'll go in a little more detail uh, than I did in, I think in the talk on Vedana, I talked about the model of dependent arising. And it's a helpful model because we really can use it to also get clearer about what happens in awakening. And general, generally speaking, and I'll talk a little more about each of these, there are three core, uh, really, aspects of um, this model. You know, the, the, there's the, uh, what we bring to experience, what we encounter in experience, and then the consequences of the experience. And in a little more depth, in particular, there are three dimensions that really keep the cycle of suffering going. The first is ignorance. The second is more the habitual tendencies. And the third is the way we act on the habitual tendencies. And those can be, those can be unpacked and that gives a pretty clear sense, both of um, the roots of suffering and of the path of awakening, because the path of awakening addresses each of those three. We address 
uh, how we tend to act out, both in our minds and in our actions and interactions. We can address habitual tendencies. So if there's uh, anything happening here in this month, in these two months, we're really exploring that. We're really exploring habitual tendencies and being with them and opening to them and then opening to the more awakened qualities. And then we can also practice to uproot ignorance. So it's kind of a, the dependent arising model can give a, a fairly simple way, but I think one that goes quite deep to, to see both the nature of bondage and the nature of suffering. And so we talked about uh, ignorance as a kind of spiritual ignorance, which is most deeply unaware or ignorant of uh, what's called the unconditioned, the, the uh, deepest aspect of our being. And on somewhat um, less subtle levels, um, not aware of impermanence, the nature of suffering, the interconnected um, nature of phenomenon of our experience. We, we tend to believe in the solid, separate self. And then there are the habitual tendencies, very much on the basis of the ignorance, we tend to really develop the idea, and it's really on the basis of ignorance, we have the sense, uh, I am a separate being who needs to uh, gather pleasant experiences in order to be happy, and my sense of myself is of separate and permanent. And I don't fully uh, notice the impermanent nature of phenomena. And so that's, that's the setup, right? That's the setup of our experience. And on that basis, we enter into our lives and we act in ways that bring about suffering. You know, and then maybe to um, compound it, um, all of our individual tendencies are also crystallized in families, institutions, and cultures, <laughs> where they get all those tendencies get uh, institutionalized and uh, work in a reciprocal relationship where. Uh, we get conditioned by the culture and we in turn condition the culture. You know, I was, I had a clipping from the fall just about, um, about how some of the conditioning of our economic institutions, I think which we're probably familiar with. And this is from headline San Francisco Chronicle, disastrous day for markets blamed on European crisis. And here's um, from the text, Um, a trader said this, markets always vacillate between fear and greed. Today we're coming down pretty much all on the fear side. (laughs) Said Kim Coffey, um, uh, equity research analyst in the Fort Pitt Capital Group. So, So the institutions and culture can keep the cycles of greed, hatred, and delusion going. And there is this way that, that yeah, I, mean, I think we know that it manifests. Uh, Dr. King used to talk about the three poisons of um, poverty, militarism, and racism. You know, And the things get institutionalized and then they come back. So we're in a sense uh, caught in this um, web of suffering. I think we, there also are wonderful and beautiful qualities. This, of course, what I just said is not the full story. <laughs> There's some wonderful and beautiful qualities carried by culture and carried by families and present in our individuals. But when we look at the structure of suffering, it's something, something like that. And you know, it's all made more difficult by the fact that we're actually not very much in touch with experience. Part of what we do coming to a long retreat is that we really come back much more fully, continually to direct experience. 
And we know that um, uh, much of experience, much of our experience and much of the experience of those in the world is somehow sort of caught many removes from direct experience, caught in thoughts, emotions, beliefs, narratives, ideologies, stories, replays of the past and so forth. And we know that process. We know how a particular experience can spark a whole storyline. You know, one three minute experience can set the tone for the next three hours, right? Potentially. And we go off in, in um, what, I think, I think this was mentioned before, what is sometimes called papancha, conceptual proliferation, you know? And we could say that in so many ways, the whole culture lives in that conceptual proliferation. And we do a significant amount of the time. And we notice it here, even with the conditions uh, developed to really return more deeply to direct experience, to being with the um, thoughts, emotions, the bodily experience, the Vedana and so forth, without so much proliferation. And it's really, it's not so much that there's anything wrong with thoughts or interpretations or beliefs per se, it's just that so many of them occur without awareness and we're lost in them and they proliferate and they're reactive and automatic. That can cause problems. <laughs> and so this is, um, this is somewhat the situation, you know, individually and in the culture, these, this, these cycles of suffering um, are very strong and they're very, and they have to really be known and seen. This is from, this is from the poet Rilke. No one lives his life disguised since childhood, haphazardly assembled from voices and fears and little pleasures. We come of age as masks. Our true face never speaks. Somewhere there must be storehouses where all these lives are laid away like suits of armor or old carriages or clothes hanging limply on the walls. Maybe all paths lead there to the repository of unlived things. Or from the Buddha. Practitioners, ignorance is the forerunner in the entry upon unwholesome states with shamelessness and fearlessness of wrongdoing following along. For an unwise person immersed in ignorance, wrong view springs up. For one of wrong view, wrong intention springs up. For one of wrong intention, wrong speech springs up. For one of wrong speech, wrong action springs up. For one of wrong action, wrong effort springs up. For one of wrong effort, wrong mindfulness springs up. For one of uh, wrong mindfulness, wrong concentration springs up. So it's what um, Zorba the Greek called the whole catastrophe. (laughs) So again, it's um, not the whole picture. It's important. It's not the whole picture. And there are in all of our lives uh, beautiful resources in the cult, in all cultures, they're beautiful resources. But we're really invited particularly to look at these dynamics of um, how suffering occurs. And I like the model of dependent arising because it really can help us to focus on really uh, just three areas. The basic ignorance, what I was describing, the habitual tendencies towards greed, hatred, delusion, which are called the sankara, or the, the, almost like an almost equivalent to the unconscious in the Western, um, Western tradition. That, but those habitual tendencies, and then thirdly, the way, you know, the way we act, you know, and a lot of the exploration we've done so far is, is that when we're mindful of the feeling tone, Vedana, the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, when we're mindful of thoughts and emotions, we can watch the tendencies towards craving or towards strong compulsive aversion. And we actually um, don't need, if we're suitably aware, 
we, we are able not to carry out those habitual tendencies and the cycle is short-circuited. This is how our practice works, really. But we can really intervene in a number of different ways. You know, we can, we can think of the whole dimension of ethics as connected with not taking some of those final steps in our action and our interaction towards grasping, however that manifests. If we think of the uh, five lay precepts, the, the, um, the strong aversion that is connected with harming, the grasping that's connected with greed and taking that which is not offered, and then often the delusion and the grasping that's connected with the unskillful use of speech or sexuality or um, substances which shift consciousness. And so when we, ta- when we take on the ethical precepts, we're really in, it really is in part connected with our mindfulness, and we, but we also um, really take a stand as best we can not to let the movement from craving or strong aversion lead to grasping or strong pushing away. That's one way, oops, there goes dependent arising. <laughs> okay. It's one way to, thank you. It wasn't really going anywhere. <laughs> so uh, That's one way to really understand what we're doing ethically and how it really ties in with our uh, meditation. You know, and then in meditation, we're able through various practices, mindfulness and metta and concentration, we're able to really be at all three of those levels. We're able to, uh, in present time, not necessarily grasp or push away. Uh, we, we summon the mindfulness. We also study over and over again the habitual tendencies. We watch those tendencies of mind and the sustained mindfulness actually tends to uproot them. You know, when there's awareness, and I think we can know this, that they, they, they become less strong with mindfulness and concentration. And eventually, when we see into that first level that I was calling the level of ignorance, we really uproot the source that leads to those habitual tendencies. And we can do that when we really study closely the nature of suffering when we really work with the two teachings of the two arrows or the four truths, when we really study that in our own experience, we are uprooting the strongly rooted tendency up, you know, okay, mixed metaphor. My high school English teacher is not far away. <laughs> so, so, Miss Baker. <laughs> Anyone have Miss Baker? Okay. So, um, we, we, um, we're less ignorant. When we study suffering a lot, we are less ignorant. When we really hang out with impermanence, we are uprooting ignorance. When we continually watch the moments of uh, self-arising, what we sometimes call selfing, we notice those moments. We notice the self-image or the self-judgment or all of those phenomena, and we keep on watching it. There's something that's happening that's transformative. And we, I think maybe above all, we, through the mindfulness and concentration, we really, in a way, drop down to more direct experience and hang out more and more there, which is really where the work has to be done. You know, when we get to those higher levels, it's hard to get at the roots of things, you know. And so we, we, we drop down, we return to more direct experience over and over again, you know, and, and over time maybe we develop that confidence of, of that practice. And so together, all of these practices and these perspectives are one way of talking about the path of awakening. This is what we're engaged in. This is our practice. And there are actually a number of different ways that we can look at this path of awakening. I, I want to talk about two of them. I want to talk particularly about a more gradual sense of this path of awakening. And I also want to talk some 
about how the path of awakening can be more immediate and not so much a gradual path going into the future so that we can in a sense have uh, a sense of the, uh, on the one hand, the gradual path. On the other hand, we might say, fruition as path or the end of the path, being in touch with the end of the path as path. I'll explain what I mean by that later. Okay. So, you know, the, I think maybe the most common model that we use is this model of a gradual path. And it's something that's really, uh, I think probably in the, in the uh, text, it's probably the most common model. It's probably the one that we use more here, most here in the hall. There's a sense that we continually practice and it's not a, not a linear path, but we, we develop as we practice. We uh, sometimes cyclical or spiral or involving the cycles that Heather talked about, but there's some development that occurs. And this was talked about by the Buddha all the time. He says, this is a gradual path. He compared it to the coast off the continent of India. And he, this is one of, his, um, one of his statements. Just as the ocean has a gradual shelf, a gradual slope, a gradual inclination, with a sharp drop off only after a long stretch, in the same way this Dhamma and Vinaya have a gradual training, a gradual performance, a gradual progression, with a penetration to final knowledge only after a long stretch. That sense of a gradual path. He says another place, I do not say that final knowledge is achieved all at once. On the contrary, that knowledge is achieved by gradual training, by gradual practice, by gradual progress. And there are all sorts of metaphors that are used in the text. There's the metaphor of purification. There's the metaphor of tending a fruit tree so that at the end of the season, there are fruits, (laughs) you know. There are, there are all these metaphors. Sometimes it's the refinement of gold, you know. So we are gold with a lot of impurities and we, we engage in this refining process, you know. And we know what that is. It's very much what I talked about. It's watching the habitual tendencies over and over. It's um, developing in the factors of awakening or the the paramis developing further in our mindfulness. Um, and it's a powerful curriculum. You know, I sometimes think, you know, and I think there are ways in which our learning process is really also finding a, an expression that's really maybe distinct to people living in this culture, you know, um, broadly, broadly understood that, you know, we're, I think, moving towards some sense of a path that, that includes uh, the psychological dimensions, how that gets integrated with our meditation practice, um, how it gets connected with everyday life and so forth. And these are, I think, uh, all, all challenges. But there's, for me, there's, we can look and say, oh, it's an amazing curriculum. Or I think of the different uh, trainings that I've received, you know, or the different retreats. And I could kind of go down the list. Okay, well, okay, that, that retreat was, Okay, I studied fear on that retreat. For me, for some reason, the retreats you know, have titles. <laughs> you know, they're kind of, I don't know. I mean, I, there are a lot of retreats where different things happened and varied things happened, but a lot of the retreats seem unified by, okay, that was the retreat for, for fear. You know, it was actually, I was thinking it was an early retreat where... Um, I also saw into self a lot. It was, it, was, it was like sort of the deconstruction of self-fear retreat, which they're connected. <laughs> you know, I think so. I was, I was actually in the hall and I thought I was making too much noise. And you know that one? <laughs> you know, or uh, it's either I'm making too much noise or the person near me is making too much noise, you know. But in this case, I thought I was making too much noise. And, you know, I was a pretty young practitioner. 
I was really, I really wanted to be a good meditator. And I got very self-conscious. And I um, kept watching the self, um, kind of wanting to stop. There were kind of noises related to my body, you know, just natural ones. I won't go into more detail. (laughs) (laughs) But I couldn't really, uh, they were kept on happening. And I was... I was uh, wanting them to stop and I was sure that everyone was thinking I was an awful meditator. And I kind of had a self-image of, you know, trying to really, like, be really good at things. And it was on the collision course with what was happening, right? And so I got to watch, you know, my, oh, people are going to think this or people are going to think that. And the sense of self, really um, was seen over and over again. And it was not fun. It was not fun. It was painful, you know, and it was scary, you know. And, um, but we give the support. And I think, you know, I know many of us have had times like that, either here or other retreats. And I just stayed with it. You know, I just stayed with it and watched it. And I studied the nature of fear. And, I, you know, it took me a while to realize that I was kind of making it all up. That it didn't really matter if I was making a little bit of noise. And I got to study fear. And at least in that case, I studied fear over and over again. And I saw that it was like uh, illusory in that instance, in that retreat. And it was very, very interesting just to watch the construction of fear linked with the deconstruction of self over and over again. So things occur. Have there been other retreats where I've got to look at self-judgment. I've had judgment retreats. And, um, you know, retreats. Uh, I had one anger retreat. I think I talked about that, where I was um, angry for 18 hours a day for 10 days. I may seem like a friendly, perhaps even gentle person. <laughs> but that's what happened. <laughs> And, you know, it was, it was incredibly illuminating. You know, we get to sit like that. So, so, you know, I don't know. I don't know if there are a certain number of retreats like that, but it's an incredible curriculum. I have all these curriculum to really look into these core emotions, core patterns, core habits, other retreats, you know, where I've developed further in metta or developed further in concentration or developed further in choiceless awareness. And, you know, I mean, I could design beautiful curriculum, you know, with all these amazing things to develop, you know, that really take us further. And uh, to me, it's, it's, you know, I mean, uh, you know, even the hard retreats are, you know, I think at the moment I often, there's often clear learning. I can feel that. So there's, there's this amazing curriculum where we, where we work through uh, so much and we, we, uh, stay with things and we make use of the community support and so forth. And it takes a lot of patience, doesn't it? It takes a lot of effort, a lot of patience. You know, and we, as we often say at the end of the uh, last period in chanting, there's no way we could do this without each other. You know, to have that support for being with, um, you know, your counterpart of what I was describing. And some of it beautiful, some of it hard. We need, we need that support. You know, there's a, it's a beautiful poem about that um, from uh, Pablo Neruda from uh, Chile. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. And we, that quality of repetition is really, really crucial. You know, I think you know, this isn't the weekend workshop approach. You know, it's, it's like that. 
was thinking of a, there was a New Yorker cartoon which shows two monks and said, I think we better pack our lunch. We may be here for a while. <laughs> so um, the repetition's really important and it's, uh, I sometimes think of our practice as the exhaustion method. And that the repetition is really important. And there's, you know, how we learn is mysterious, right? It's almost like you have to look at something. I don't know. We look at one pattern and we haven't really got it on the 450th time. We haven't really got it on the 1,233rd time. But mysteriously, on the 2,134th time, sometimes when we are so exhausted, that our habitual tendencies drop away for a moment and there's insight. So the repetition is really, really important and it, it takes patience and it takes um, energy, it takes, takes wisdom, it takes compassion, you know, all of those qualities. And so in that, in that gradual path, there can be a clear sense of qualities we're developing we can have a sense of moving towards what in the teachings and the text is understood as Nibbana. Often understood in a way which connects with the um, gradual path. It's understood most frequently as the absence of greed, hatred, or delusion. You know? And we can have a sense that, the, that that's not there sometimes. That we, are, we have moments in which we're relatively free of greed, hatred, or delusion. And we can notice the, you know, how habitual tendencies are not so strong. We can see some movement. We can see some progress. The Dalai Lama, I believe, said, when you're looking for progress, do your reckoning on a five-year basis. Because it's very hard to know where we are in the middle of things. You know, so that quality of don't know mind and really staying with it, which does take faith and energy, is really important. You know, there can be a lot of suffering because by thinking that we know what should be happening because we have an idea of what progress should look like. I think we know that, right? I think we know that very well. One of the problems of the gradual path is that we may lose sight of the goal. I think this is especially an issue in daily life, but it can really be an issue in our retreat practice as well. You know, that we don't have a sense necessarily of this deepest freedom, that we can be so consumed by working with the habitual tendencies or doing those practices that we, that we can lose sight of that. And it's also very much in some of the ways that Buddhism has developed um, in Asia, this is uh, Buddha Dasa talking about the situation in Thailand. In the schools, children are taught that Nibbana is the death of an arhant. The ordinary person in the street has been taught that it's a special city empty of pain and chock full of the happiness of fulfilled wishes, supposedly reached after death by those who store up the paramis over tens of thousands of lifetimes. Students in general consider it a matter for devout old folks at the temple with nothing of relevance for them. Young men and women think it's bland and unexciting, awful and frightening. All of the candidates for the monkhood nearly mouth without understanding the vow, may I go forth in order to awaken to Nibbana. The old monks say Nibbana can't happen anymore in this day and age. And an arhant can't exist anymore either. That's a fully enlightened being. So finally, Nibbana has become a secret that no one cares about. They've turned it into something barren and silent, buried away in the text to be paid occasional service and sermons while no one really knows what it is. It can happen sometimes if we focus on the gradual path. We don't really know where we're going. One of the uh, great yogis of the last century um, said this, if you don't know where you're going, you will wind up somewhere else. That's uh, Yogi Berra.
So the, the danger, the danger is, is that we lose sight in our practice. We don't remember that goal, which is really part and parcel of this, that sense of deepest freedom, you know, and we may be future oriented or we may be really narrowly focused on what's happening. Um, we may, our meditation may be, may be self-centered. You know, we may be meditating to become a better person, you know. Um, and it's very, very interesting. I, I once um, had a retreat um, that I did with Christopher Titmus in England. And he, uh, this, was, this was a retreat where uh, I had worked with him for some years and he said, um, don't do anything. Don't meditate, don't do anything. And then he added, and be aware of the absolute. Those were my meditation instructions for about 10 or 11 days. And, you know, uh, for, for me, uh, not doing was hard to do, so to speak. And because I think we're, you know, so many of us are, are doers and so forth. And, and, but it became really beautiful to kind of let go of the sense of self and the doer. And at a certain point, uh, when I was, it was really just being present, as just being present without deliberately meditating, trying to be present and have a sense of something large that I was connected with. And I noticed myself at n- a number of points saying, I'm really doing this not doing well. <laughs> you know, so, so the... You know, that sense of self, uh, Chagyam Trungpa Rinpoche called it spiritual materialism. It can, you know, I think we notice that after every important insight, right? It gets appropriated by the self. <laughs> you want to be on the lookout for that. And it's normal. <laughs> okay. You know, I was, um, uh, I really had a, a, a sense of relief once when I was at a retreat I think there was uh, like one evening there was no talk, but people were had kind of the teachers were up there answering questions, and someone asked a question about uh, the stages of awakening in the uh, Theravada tradition, and the stages you may know are those of a stream enterer, uh, once returner, which means in that system one more lifetime of practice, a non-returner, and an arhat. And it's sometimes connected with a model called the uh, 10 fetters, which I won't go into so much, except to say, I think the next to last fetter is basically self-centeredness. And they were there on this panel saying, you can have people with tremendously deep uh, practice, deep realization. You can have a panel, you could have a panel of three non-returners sitting up there, each thinking they're a better non-returner than the other. And that would be normal because that's, <laughs> that, and for me, that was tremendous relief. I don't, I'm not quite sure why, but it was. You know, that, that I think it was more that I could kind of relax, basically relax with the sense of self or the, self, the appropriation by self of experience because the, that model says that, of course, the, the self gets thinned out, but the, some of the remnants of it are there for a while. You know, and only... Uh, get uprooted really right near the end. I found that quite, quite um, important. But if we don't really attend to that deeper level of awakening, it can recede. And we can have a gradual path and we, like Yogi Berra says, we might not know where we're going. We're not oriented in that way or it may not be meaningful to us. There's also a second sense of path which can make that sense of the, of Nibbana or the, um, the end or the goal of practice, I think more accessible. It's really to have it be more possible to taste the quality of freedom that is there potentially in our practice and to taste that more as a matter of, of everyday practice. That's what I want to talk about for the rest of the, um, the rest of the talk. It's right there in the tradition. You know, it's right there. The sense that awakening is available. 
You know, there's the, I think Heather talked some about this. There's that chant that's, that uh, we used to chant at retreats at IMS. We used to chant this long chant at the end of the um, evening. Uh, and it has these lines in it, which are, which are well known. Swakato Bhagavata Dhammo Sanditiko Akaliko Ehipasiko Upanaiko Pachatamwe Ditapo Winyuhiti. What these are, uh, what's chanted, are the six qualities of the, of the Dharma or the Dhamma when it's seen clearly. Swakato Bhagavata Dhammo discovered and well-proclaimed uh, by the Buddha, by the Blessed One. Sanditiko, apparent here and now. It's an emphasis. Apparent here and now or directly visible. Akaliko, immediate or out of time. Ehipasiko, come and see. Look, come and see that invitation. Opanayako, onward leading, bachatamwe ditapo winyuhiti, experienceable by the wise. So not something necessarily remote or just in the books, but something that can be, can be accessible. You know, and there, it's mostly talked about, as I said, uh, more negatively as the absence of greed, hatred, or delusion. It ha- it's like the uh, cooling out of a fire in the... Uh, uh, some of the metaphors used, and there are various um, other metaphors used. It's, as, as Heather was saying, it's the deathless. It's peace, safety, freedom, shelter. Um, it's a refuge. It's an island for those who have fallen in the water. It's the supreme joy. It's the other shore, and so forth. And the question is, how, how can that be something that is ex- more accessible? How can that sense of um, deepest freedom be more accessible in our practice? Just for, for any of us, really. One way of looking at it is to emphasize how the moment of freedom is accessible that that quality of freedom without greed, hatred, or delusion can be touched, even if it just lasts for a moment. That it's there more than we think, more than we might understand. There's a, there's a beautiful text that I read a lot in the Tibetan tradition called um, Three Words uh, Striking the Vital Point. It's a... Um, it's a um, text by a 19th century Tibetan teacher named Patro Rinpoche. And I, I kind of translated the three points into um, uh, the language of this tradition because it's very simple, but it can be helpful for uh, orienting our practice. The three core points of practice, and I love these simplifications, you know, where we simplify practice. The first could be said to be touch freedom, even for a moment. Touch freedom. Second, these are my translations. Resolve that freedom is at the center of your life. And third, gain confidence in liberation over and over again. That's the training. Touch freedom Resolve <clears throat> that such touching freedom is at the center of one's life. Gain confidence and liberation over and over again. You know, the, the result, this is actually from the text. At that time, your likes and dislikes, joys and sorrows, and all of your passing thoughts, without exception, leave no trace. The sense of that. And there's another model that I, that I like very much that's in that text, similar, which goes a little bit different focus, which is that first touch freedom, then keep touching it. 
You know, it's like I was thinking of something in a store which says, don't touch. Well, okay, freedom, keep touching. <laughs> okay, touch freedom, touch it more and more and more until it becomes relatively stable in meditation and retreat. And then practice more and more so that it becomes more and more stable outside of formal meditation. It's kind of a sequence there. But there's a tremendous value of touching freedom more and more in meditation. And then I won't talk so much about daily life. That's another one. (laughs) That's another step, big step. But on retreat, it's possible to touch that freedom more and more. And so it's very simple. It's the moments where we don't shoot the second arrow where we're noticing the first arrow, we're noticing this doesn't feel good. I can notice the habitual tendencies, let's say to judge myself. And I notice it once and then it doesn't occur. Even though the um, original stimulus may still be there. That's a moment of freedom. When I'm not going through the habitual tendencies in the usual way. And it's really important to be able to tune into that So part of what I'm inviting is when there is that moment of freedom, even fleeting, see what it feels like inside. What is that like, that moment? It doesn't have to be dramatic with bells and whistles and lights and so forth. Freedom is that absence of greed, hatred, and delusion. And so to tune into that, to increasingly, and it can just be there when we're sitting there no greed, hatred, and delusion, relatively content, nothing much happening. Tune into that. Tune into that sense of, I don't need to go anywhere, I don't need to do anything, I'm just here, I'm just present. And, what, and feel that sense of lack of uh, compulsion. Another, another way that it's understood in the text is as a kind, something like a very large awareness that holds everything. That Nibbana is sometimes understood in that way. It's understood that way in other traditions as well. That sometimes we distinguish between consciousness and awareness. And in in the text, consciousness is almost always involved in a relationship to an object. We might say there's a subject-object relationship. And sometimes what might be translated as an awareness free of the subject-object relationship is also mentioned. It's not central in text, but it's there some. Here's, I'll read a few uh, quotations. And it really has to do with opening up to a kind of awareness which is open, and some people call it a pure awareness, where we're just present and where we're not separating the world into inner and outer, subject and object, self and other, and we're not fixating on anything. We're just aware, we're just present. This is from the Buddha. Where consciousness is signless, boundless, all luminous, That's where earth, water, fire, and air find no footing. They're both long and short, small and great, fair and foul. Their name and form are wholly destroyed. Really, uh, it's pointing to an awareness uh, very much like uh, John was talking about, the subtle characteristics where we move outside of conceptual experience. And yet we're present, yet there's awareness. Another another quotation, using similar metaphors, but really clearly connecting it with the overcoming of all suffering. Where neither water nor yet earth nor fire nor air gain a foothold. When a sage has come to know this for oneself through one's own wisdom, then one is freed from form, from formless, freed from pleasures and from pain. And one touches that that, uh, deeper sense that Mary Grace talked about, that luminous quality of of mind, that luminous quality of presence. 
And that's it's also talked about a lot, and, and uh, I know Heather mentioned this, in the Thai forest tradition. Uh, Achan Sumedho talks about this kind of awareness as natural consciousness. You know, a kind of awareness which can just be present without dividing the world up, without fixating on anything. And talks about the healing qualities of such awareness and the beautiful qualities of it. For Achan Jimnian and others talk about Mahasati, or a great mindfulness. Achan Cha talks about the one who knows, this kind of awareness. Uh, another teacher, Achan Mahabua, who I had the privilege of uh, studying with a little bit, talks about the pure mind or the, the eternal state of mind and heart. And he, this is what he says. Whatever arises has to vanish. Whatever is true, whatever is a natural principle in and of itself won't vanish. In other words, the pure mind doesn't vanish. Everything of every sort may vanish, but that which knows they're vanishing doesn't vanish. This vanishes, that vanishes, but the one who knows their vanishing doesn't vanish. Whether we try or not, it keeps on knowing. That's um, really beneath everything. And it's when we touch that, that's where a lot of that deeper ignorance starts to get uprooted. When we touch that. Because we, in a, in a way... Um, aren't really um, following that ignorance and not following the habitual tendencies when we can touch that. So it's a kind of awareness without, at that moment without suffering, without a sense of separate objects, without present, past or future, without a split of inner and outer. It really is something that holds everything holds the mind, holds the heart, holds the body. So natural question is, how do we go there? (laughs) How do we develop that quality more? And I mentioned that we can really tune in at times to that sense of uh, the lack in a moment of greed, hatred, delusion. Buddha Dasa talks a lot about simple contentment being surprisingly close to to nirvana. So to notice contentment, to tune into that, uh, to notice when one has freedom because one has not followed an habitual tendency and to tune into that. There are all sorts of ways in which that kind of openness occurs in ordinary experience. It can occur in the midst of being in the natural world. It can occur in, um, for an artist. Sometimes everything falls away. It can occur in sports. I had a friend who wrote a book on the spiritual and psychological dimension of sports. He found them some of the most profound experiences happening in sports. Yeah. It can happen in intimate relationships. Something just opens up. I have another friend who wrote a book on that. (laughs) And it can also happen sometimes in heroic action, where where the sense of self just falls away and what needs to be done is done and there's something vaster there. People talk about that. People talk about that in those kind of instances where something, the usual constructions fall away and we open up to something. So it can happen in ordinary experience. And it can happen in... Uh, you know, it can happen in our practice. Sometimes for me, the metta towards all beings can get very vast. We do the metta towards all beings and rest there. And it opens up to something like that state, you know. Um, a traditional method uh, that's sometimes used or sometimes used is actually to... Um, Look for the moments, the natural moments, when thought constructions vanish. They can be moments when we're totally exhausted, which is why the exhaustion method is important. <laughs> they can be moments when we, uh, you know, I've studied with spiritual teachers who point to the vast importance of studying yawning, 
and being startled. Something interesting happens at those moments. <laughs> Something is opened up because we move outside just for a moment of the ordinary constructions. Sneezing also. Okay, I, won't, I won't give instructions tomorrow morning on that, but, <laughs> but just to know, you know, um, there is a, um, there's an interesting way for me that this practice can be done following some of the earlier instructions in which we progressively deepen in concentration and remove some of the constructs of experience. So for me, one progression that I like a lot is where we start off by stabilizing attention, let's say with the breath, it becomes relatively stable. And then we start moving into choiceless awareness, you know, which, which Heather um, guided us in. We, and we stay with choiceless awareness, which in a way is uh, removing some of the distinctions of experience. My experience of choiceless awareness, the inner and outer distinction tends to go. You know, and what's an inner experience and an outer experience tends to mingle. You know, and there's a less of a sense of self because whatever's happening is, is happening. I can be with breath, sound, this, that. And when the mind gets quiet, one can be with a, a flow where one can really be studying very intimately the uh, three characteristics. Can really stay with impermanence when the mind gets quiet like that can just be on the level of sensations happening rapidly. And that starts to move towards that kind of awareness. Another step that can be very helpful, if, if that gets pretty stable, and that may take a while, <laughs> you know, I did several years of that <laughs> before it got too stable. But when that gets stable, then you can open your eyes because the eyes tend to fixate way more than the other senses. I think we know that can open our, one's eyes and see if one can learn to not fixate and just have that awareness with eyes open. But one still is trying to pay attention. With choiceless awareness, there's still an, a subject-object split. And then a last step is remove the intention to know and let it be and rest in that and see what's there. And just maybe stay there for five seconds and keep trying that and see, you know, but the other, the earlier stages have to be relatively stable. And so I'll just close by um, saying that 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 process where we, in a sense, uh, deconstruct many of the core constructions of our experience, or at least our attachment to them. It takes time, it takes practice, it has to come in the right way. And there's a way in which when that's done, we once again return to ordinary experience, except it's a little bit different. And so I wanted to just close with two senses of that. Um, One is the famous text from the Zen tradition about mountains and rivers. Many of you know this, I'm sure. But it's that sense of that process of going deeper and deeper into that awareness, that pure awareness, the working through the constructions and the fixations, all the stuff that it takes us on a journey where we see the world differently. And then after we see it differently, we come back to the ordinary world with a little bit different eyes. One teacher said, 30 years ago, before I had studied Zen, I saw mountains as mountains and rivers as rivers. And then later, when I had more intimate knowledge, I came to see mountains not as mountains and rivers, and rivers not as rivers. That's the deconstruction process. But now that I have attained the substance, I again see mountains just as mountains, and rivers just as rivers. That's a Zen passage, so I won't try to explain it. Uh, but it, it points to that coming back, that reintegration. And, and the last thing to say is that the whole process is a dear process and a challenging process and it has to be held by compassion, the whole process. And so this is from Joseph Goldstein. I'll finish with this. The more we practice compassionate responsiveness, 
the more easily we recognize the selfless quality of the mind's essence. And the more easily we recognize the innate empty wakefulness of the mind's essential nature, the more spontaneously compassionate we are in all situations. Thank you. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.